The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Amen. Jesus wrote, our hope lives on in him. It's the only reason we're here, because Jesus rose. Well, we are incredibly privileged to have with us Dr. Joel Beakey. Um, he originally had 55 minutes to preach, but now he only has 46. Um, anyway, I'm teasing. You, we don't care about time here, obviously. Um, so Dr. Beakey is, um, and I don't say this because he's sitting right here, but he is, he is a laborer in the Lord's vineyard who reminds me of Spurgeon in the sense of all that Spurgeon did. If you've read anything on the life of Spurgeon, you realize he had, he had his fingers in so many things and was so busy. And so Dr. Joel Beakey is a pastor. He's the president of a seminary. He is a seminary professor. He is an author of over, well, last time he was here, it was maybe 100 books. Maybe now it's 300. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot. He writes more than, than um, anybody I know. And he does so much more. He does translation work. They have Reformation Heritage books producing 55 books a year, which is really amazing. He edits many of those. He's been responsible for uh, having his hand in getting, tell me if this is not right, Herman Bovink into English. Is that true? Yes. So for that alone, we should be forever grateful to you um, because not any of us here can read Dutch. Um, not even Dave Bokeman. Um, but anyway, um, his wonderful wife Mary is with us, and uh, you both are an absolute delight. I had Dr. Beakey in a class in 1997, and that class is now in a book, Reformed Preaching, which you can get. And um, there are things that I remember about that class that impacted me deeply. At one point, he's talking about Bunyan. And he preaches a section from the Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And we were melted to tears. And so, brother, we so appreciate you. Come and take your 43 minutes. I come from a long-winded background, and 43 minutes is hard for me. I just want to say how, how, how glad I am to be here and honored to be here. I believe the last time I was here, I think, Dr. Ware, it was you, you and me. <laughs> uh, that was great. So um, it's wonderful to be with Dr. Ware and, and his wife again. And um, I, just, uh, I just love being here. I love the love. 
that you have for one another. And I, I just love uh, Ariel and <laughs> Brian. I mean, when you're in their home, she's like the fizz in his Coke. I mean, she's just like a spark plug. And, and <laughs> it's wonderful to be around them. And my wife, uh, my wife and I enjoy this coming out here so much, so much. <clears throat> I want to say something to you I hope you'll never forget. Richard Sibbs, a great Puritan, said, the greatest gift... God gives his New Testament church is his word and spirit, word slash spirit, because the word is the work of the spirit, as we heard last night. But do you know what the second greatest gift the New Testament church gives you? Second greatest gift in your life the New Testament church gives you? It's your pastor. To break the bread of life to bring you the word of God. Treasure your pastor. Don't exalt him. We are all nothing, but treasure him. Because through him, you you grow in grace through the word of God coming to you from week to week. Well, turn with me, please, to uh, three short passages. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, through seven. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Notice that all those activities are daily activities. That's a Hebraic way of saying, teach your children from the word every single day. Every single day when they are yet home with you. Then turn to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. This is Joshua's farewell address when he's 100 years old. 100 years old. Just two verses. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve, or you can translate it, we will worship the Lord. And then 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child 
Thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture, literally in the Greek, every single scripture, every jot and tittle, every word of every text is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let's pray. Lord God, bless this address in a mighty way. And please grant that every single father, with the support of his wife, the mother, would commit themselves to doing daily, conscientious, intentional, God-glorifying, word-based family worship every single day, looking to Jesus for divine benediction. And as we focus especially, Lord, on how to use the Bible in family worship in this address, please grant wisdom, ability, application in so doing, and grant that this address may enlighten parents on how to proceed and to enlarge, perhaps, but certainly to deepen the word-centeredness of their family worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I've had the privilege of serving three churches in my, my life, the present one, 37 years, and I can say of all three churches that the backbone families of the church that stay generation after generation are usually precisely the families that are committed to daily family worship led by the Father. If you want your own family to grow, you want your church to grow quantitatively, qualitatively, one of the most important means of grace is daily family worship. The tragedy is that we have lost the art of two means of grace today that our forefathers had. One is meditation, that's a whole separate talk. The other is family worship. Somehow this has fallen out of favor. And actually, many places I go around the world and preach on family worship in one way or another, I discover that a lot of families, a lot of fathers, Christian fathers, real Christian fathers, don't even know they're supposed to be doing it. It's so far out of our horizon. I want to put it back front place and center for you and your family this morning. When my parents had their 50th anniversary, each one of us five children agreed to thank my mother for one thing and thank my father for one thing without telling each other what we were going to thank them for. In God's providence, all five of us thanked my mother for her secret prayer life. And all five of us thanked my father for leading us in family worship. Particularly, all five of us 
singled out the prolonged family worship that my father always led on Sunday evenings in which he, we would sing. Every, we've all, all seven of us would, would pick out a psalter and we'd sing it. And then he would pray. And then he would read the Bible, talk a little bit about that. And then he'd pull out Pilgrim's Progress. All 20 years I was home. We must have read it 15 times. And my dad would read a few pages. He'd stop, he'd ask for questions, we'd sit at his feet, and he'd answer our questions. And he, was, he excelled, he had eighth grade education, but he excelled as a teacher. And he would talk to us about how the Holy Spirit works in the heart of sinners, often with the tears streaming down his face. And on that 50th wedding anniversary occasion, my older brother said this, Dad, I want to thank you that I never had to doubt the existence of God in my entire life. Because my oldest memory in life is when I was three years old, sitting on your lap in family worship, and the tears were streaming down your face. I can't remember what you said, but the tears were streaming down your face as you taught us. I remember as a three-year-old looking up into your face and just thinking, God is real. Family worship has been used for millions of children in church history to bring them to Christ. Like Mark 10, the parents brought their children to Jesus. One of the primary ways you bring your children to Jesus is every day in family worship. And so I want to bring you this message with three points. First, the duty of family worship. Second, and here's where we're gonna take most of our time, the implementation of family worship. I'm gonna focus on the use of the Bible. And then third, conclude with some motivations. So, duty, implementation, motivations. Now Joshua, in Joshua 24, says with confidence, even though he's 100 years old, and he's departing from the scene, he says, as for me and my children, my house, we will worship the Lord. How does he, how does he know that? How, how does he know that they're going to go on every day worshiping the Lord? Well, it's been a holy habit. When our oldest got married, our son, the last time I met with him before he was married, I had a whole list of things of advice. I said, this is the last time I can give you advice without you asking me for advice because you're going to be the head of a new household. So I had on the list, make sure he's going to keep doing family worship. Halfway through the conversation, I scratched that one out. Why? It was unnecessary. I mean, if I had skipped a day of family worship, my kids would have said, Dad, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? What are you doing? You see, when it becomes a holy habit, the question isn't, shall we do it? The question is, oh Lord, bless our feeble efforts today to the well-being, the eternal well-being and the lifetime well-being of our dear, precious children. That's how Joshua must have felt. He just said, as for me and my house, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm dying. But they will, they will worship the Lord. And then you read 16 verses later, chapter 24, 
Verse 31, you read this amazing thing that the whole nation, those were the days, of course, when, when a leader could, could impact a whole nation. The whole nation went on and worshiped the Lord for the entire next generation. That's amazing. Don't you want the, you, your, your children and your grandchildren to serve the Lord? Don't you want the blessing of Psalm 128, verse 6? Thou shalt see thy children's children in peace upon Israel? Of course you do. Well, engage then in daily family worship, looking to the Lord for blessing. So what does the Bible say we need to do in family worship? What's our duty? Four things. Number one is to read the Scriptures daily. 2 Timothy 3.14. From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. That implies, doesn't it, a daily instruction. From a little child, we were teaching you day by day the Scriptures. What a blessed mother, what a blessed grandmother Timothy had. Bringing him to the Scriptures. If you're a single mom, you say, you just, you take the leadership of the family worship, or when your husband's gone, just the same as if you had a man in the home or your husband was home. So, I hope I don't have to belabor this. I hope there's no one here that's not doing at least this much. Daily, you're reading the family. I hope you're not letting your cobwebs grow in your Bible at home. Every day, this is obvious. Every day, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need spiritual food every day, exactly the same as we need physical food. You don't say to yourself, do you? Well, I'm going to pig out today, and then I'm going to skip eating, and I'll pick it up on Friday. No, you eat every day, a balanced portion. Every day, you bring the Word of God to your children. Balanced portion. We need the daily dripping of the Word of God into our lives and hearts. If really you're going to grow with a word consciousness and a God consciousness and live in quorum Deo, in the face of God. Number two, daily instruction in the Word of God. Notice that Moses says, we are to take our children and we are to not just teach them, but we are to teach them diligently. Every day, sit down, rise up, walk by the way. Not just in family worship, that's the, that's the foundational plank, but as we move through life as well, we're teaching, 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 but diligently, with passion, so you can do family worship every day with your kids in a dull, dry voice, and then you get all excited about the Super Bowl and who wins that crazy football game. And what do your kids pick up? Well, dad is more excited about who wins a ball game than he is about Jesus Christ. No, your best energy in life should be in family worship. This is the most important thing you do in your entire life when you're a parent is lead your children in family worship. So you do it diligently. You do it with passion. Third, daily prayer to the throne of God. You realize that Jeremiah tells us that God will pour out his fury. Strongest possible Hebrew word for anger. Fury. I'm just a little bit angry. Fury upon the family that does not pray to God. 
That's incredible. Prayer is the greatest gift we, we have on earth in our way of communing back with God. You know, my dad taught me that when I was nine years old. He laid money on the bed beside, we were sitting on the bed and he laid money on the bed and he said, you see all that money? He said, if you look at that and you think of all the money in all the world, he said, do you know, do you know what is worth more than all of that? And I always said no, because I never got his answer. I never got his questions right. <laughs> he always had something deeper. So I just gave up. I just said no all the time. And he said to me, it's an open throne of grace. It's worth more than all the world to have an open throne to go to 24-7, 365. And God will never say to you, I'm tired of hearing your voice. The God of the universe has his ear tuned to your cry at any time. What a gift. So daily, bring your family to the throne of God. And four, daily singing of the praise of God. Psalm 118, verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is heard in the tents of the righteous. The tents of the righteous. So this is not synagogue singing. This is tent singing. When Israel was in the wilderness. And Philip Henry, the father of the famous Matthew Henry commentator, said this text provides a biblical basis for the daily singing of psalms in our families. Or today we'd say psalms and, and sound hymns. Sound hymns. And he argues that joyful singing comes from the individual tense of the righteous. So there you have it. Four duties. Daily reading of the word of God, daily instruction in the word of God, daily prayer to the throne of God, daily singing of the praise of God. And I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but your family, you know that owes its allegiance to God. You, Father, you are more than a friend and an advisor to your children. You are that. But you're their teacher and their ruler. Your leadership is critical. Clothed with holy authority, you owe to your children prophetical teaching, priestly intercession, and royal guidance. You're prophet, priest, and king in your home. That is the, the basic paradigm of parenting that's that's filthy, uh, um, penetrates the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. You must direct your family. You must direct your family worship by way of scripture and prayer and song. And, and your conscience affirms that, doesn't it? And Jesus is worthy of it. So lead your family daily in family worship. Be an Abraham of whom God said, I know him, that he will command his children. Not ask them, will you, will you do family worship, children? No, no, no. You eat physical bread, we provide for you, you will receive the spiritual bread. I mean, you said nicely, but you, 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 you draw your children around you. You do it with love. You do it like the, the wise man in the book of Proverbs. Come, my son, come. I will, I, will, I will give you understanding. And with understanding, I will give you wisdom. Let's talk about the word of God. The words of everlasting life. Well, how do you do it? Well, family worship requires, of course, some preparation. You've got to have your place where you're going to go every day. 
The more you can do that holy habit, the better. Everyone goes to the same chair. You all have their own pile of books, a, a Bible, a, preferably a Bible with study, good study notes and a Psalter or a hymn book or both. Maybe a daily portion or maybe you're working through a book too, reading a couple pages. Everybody has their own copy. And everybody participates who's old enough to read. And the ones who aren't old enough to read, you put, you put one on your one knee and you put the other one on your other knee, you put your arms around them, you just involve them. And you look them eyeball to eyeball. It's great when those kids are young. And you can, you can give them those early impressions like my brother had with my dad when he was three years old. So during family worship, you aim for brevity. If you have very young children, six, five, six, seven minutes is, is, is enough. And uh, kids are a bit older, or maybe you got both. If you got both, you might want to close down with a closing prayer and singing, and you might want to stay on and talk to the older children for a little while. That's fine. But don't make it too long. 10 to 15 minutes, normally, is uh, you can get a lot done in that time. Don't answer the phone. Don't let there be any interruptions. This is the highest event of the week. You're, you're like in a private little the Puritans called it a little, a little house worship. And they said, our homes during family worship are like a nursery for heaven. So don't let anything interrupt this. The, the people will call back. And plus, you've got an answering machine. It's going to be okay. You let your children know that family worship is the most important thing of the day. Now, how do you do it? Let's go over these four parts um, quickly, but, but focus now on, on, the, on the Bible. First of all, for the reading of Scripture, you have a plan. 10 to 20 verses, maybe, from the Old Testament. Maybe a few less from the New Testament. They're more, it's more dense, more packed, generally, with, with doctrine. Uh, or, if the children are very young, you, you read a lot of stories. You read the miracles, the parables. You, you read the Gospels. You read the book of Genesis, which is full of stories. Uh, you read Jonah, you read Ruth. But when they get to be about eight or nine years old, give them the whole Bible. Because then they're, they're able to start thinking analytically. And they're, they're able to understand doctrines better. As J.C. Ryle said, a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. Account for special occasions. You can break into the program of your reading. Uh, Maybe, you, maybe you're going to travel that day on a family vacation. My dad always read Psalm 91 or Psalm 121 before we went on vacation. That became a family tradition. It was beautiful. We realized we needed the protection of the Lord every time we took a, a trip. Maybe it's going to be the Lord's Supper uh, on that Lord's Day morning. Well, read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or, or Matthew 26. And involve the whole family in reading. The whole family. Uh, if we're going to read 20 verses tonight when our, all of our kids were home, I just said, okay, everyone reads four verses. Let's go around the circle this way. And they know they're going to be asked questions about it. So everyone's involved in the reading. And everyone's involved in, in the discussion. Now, when you do the reading, you teach your children how to read the Bible. 
wait a minute, my son, that's too fast. You've got to read it with reverence. You only have to tell them that a couple times, and they get it. And you have to read it with expression, my daughter. You have to read it like it's a living, breathing book, because it is. And, yeah, they won't read it perfectly, but just in a few little instructions, you can get them reading the Bible very well by the time they're seven, eight years old. Now, how do you teach them then? Well, first of all, you, when you read the Bible, you want to remember several things. You need to prepare your own heart for the reading of God's word. You need to impress on your children and their hearts also that the book they hold in God's hand, in their hands, is God's very word. Again, as we heard last night. And when you go to pray, we always did, we, actually we always did prayer, two prayers in family worship. I did the opening one, and then I always had my wife and my children take turns doing the closing one. And in the opening prayer, you can pray, can't you, for the fear of God as you do family worship, for faith in Christ as you do family worship, for sincerity, for dependence on the Spirit, for reverence, for hunger for the Word. And as you do it, you read the Bible, said Richard Greenham, the Puritan. By the way, Greenham has a whole book on, um, we're going to be reprinting it from, it's last been printed in 1599, and, and uh, with eight chapters on how to read the Bible. And he has just, each chapter is just one word for a title. You read it with wisdom, faith, prayer, diligence, and so on. And he says, you should read it with a passion like a man digging for hid treasure. Remember that parable? And willing to sell all that he has for that pearl of great price. And so what you're doing is you're, you're digging in every chapter to, to get to Christ and to bring out that pearl to your children, to speak of the fullness and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you read the Bible together with, with, with intimacy, with awe, with childlike fear, with faith, with repentance, and with confidence in family worship. And by the time you read through the whole Bible, we found, you know, everyone says you should read the whole Bible in, in one year. Well, that's great in private reading. But in family worship, you can't read long chunks. And you've got to spend time talking about it. What's the main takeaways? The main takeaways of this chapter. That's the way to read the Bible with your children. And here's where the greatest problem comes in family worship. And you know what it's like, Dad. You have the problem too, I'm sure. The Puritans used to get up a half an hour early so they could spend a half an hour preparing for family worship for their family. We just can't seem to put that together. Our lives are so busy. So about 15 years ago, there were uh, five or six of us that got together, and we spent five years writing the Family Worship Bible Guide. It's actually, um, it's actually in this Bible, the Reformation Heritage KJV Study Bible, 
which by the way has outstanding notes. Outstanding notes. Everything's reformed. This is the only KJV Bible where the notes are thoroughly reformed. But at the end of each chapter, you have this family worship section. Just two or three thoughts. It takes about 45 seconds to read. And each thought ends, almost every thought ends with a question. And that becomes the, the springboard from which you discuss things. So what we've done is we've taken, I mean, when you read Jeremiah 44, you don't know what to say to your family afterward. It's hard to grasp the main thought. But study has gone into this by solid, good, reformed, godly men, and they've given you two major thoughts from Jeremiah 44. So right away you're getting to the heart of that chapter with your children, and then you talk about the main question that is implicit in the chapter. So that's the, the, the Heritage KJV Study Bible. And um, then what we did about five years ago, this is by far our best-selling book now, is we extracted all the family worship sections. And we put it in this little book called Family Worship. It's onion-thin paper. You see how skinny it is? It's, but it's 800 and some pages. Because all, all 1,169 chapters are in here. So whatever Bible translation you use... It's made, it's made not dependent on any translation. You get the same major takeaways. So this, in my opinion, my humble opinion, this is a must. This book has transformed the family worship of tens of thousands of families. There's nothing I've done in my life that's got as much feedback as with the other guys working on this book. Family after family has come to us and said, it's transformed our family worship. The burden of doing family worship, the burden of knowing what to say, is just taken away. And, and then as you discuss things from the questions here, the, the, the conversation may take its twists and turns. That's fine. The po- important point is that you're talking with your family every day about the things of God, and your kids realize this is critical to you. The truths of the Bible are so much more important than any ball game or any Hollywood hero or whatever. So, then accompanying that is this little book on family worship, which is a prolongation of what I'm bringing you this morning, telling you how to do every part of family worship. Just a $4 book at conferences. You put these two together, spend two hours reading this book, and then you start implementing family worship. It's not that difficult to teach your children day by day. Now, the Family Worship Bible Guide is really written for 10-year-olds and and over, probably, about the 10-year-old level. Uh, 10-year-olds should have no trouble with it. But since then, in the last five years, we've had a number of parents come to us and say, could you do something like this for even younger children? Do something very, very simple. And so we started a nine-volume series running through the entire Bible of family worships for children, four to nine. And some, I know some of you are using this, you already came to me, but what it does is it does five things. First of all, it gives you two questions from yesterday's family worship, make sure your kids remembered it. Then it gives you three or four verses to read, and then it gives you three questions on those four verses, all at four to, five, nine, four to nine year old level. And then it gives you the main idea in about two paragraphs. You just read that, and then it gives you three short questions on that main idea that you ask your kids, and then a prayer request. 
takes about five to seven minutes max to go through this. Every family worship is on two pages. So this is 92 family worships walking through the book of Genesis, 90 family worships walking through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is called beginning. This is called wilderness. So these are resources designed particularly for you to help you on family worship. And you'll find them to be an immense help indeed. Now, in addition to that, you also want to teach your children things about reading the Bible that they can implement also in their own private reading. One thing is you want, you want to teach them that the Bible is difficult to read at certain places. You need, to, you need to concentrate. It's not always easy to understand. And sometimes you don't understand it, or sometimes it seems irrelevant, or sometimes it seems like there's too many wars, or, or whatever. But the Bible is, children, also at the center of a spiritual battle, a battle for your own soul. And it's worth the effort, because reading the Bible is valuable. You want to press that home on them. And it's valuable because, first of all, it's true. It's the true word of God. And secondly, it's sufficient for every area of your life. Your whole life of faith, but your whole practical life as well. God cannot lie, and his book never lies. So the Bible is rock solid, not shifting sand. And it's full of wisdom, children. You need to teach them. And then, it's also good to teach your children some basic principles for their own private time with the Bible. Be interested in their private time. Make sure they read the Bible every night on their own when they go to bed. That they have time to do it, that they have a Bible at their nightstand. And talk to them once in a while. When they're very young, read it with them. But when they get to be eight, nine, let them be alone with God. But then talk to them. Oh, son, what, 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 what book are you in now? Oh, dad, I'm in Ephesians. Oh, how's it going? Show you're interested, you see. And, and, and help them to develop a plan. Now, you can teach them, you see. It's good to study one book of the Bible at a time. And get a good intro. Like, like this study Bible has just wonderful, wonderful intros to each Bible book. A child, 11 years old, can, can read them about the author and about where do you find Jesus in this book? What's the main purpose of this book? Tell them, read that before you enter a new book so you, you know what you're going to be reading about. And then ask yourself questions like this, my son, my daughter. As you're reading this book, as you're reading Philippians, what word just keeps popping up? Rejoice! And where is Paul? Whoa, you just read in the introduction, Paul's in prison. What? How do you rejoice when you're in prison? Well, that's the background of the book. You've got you've to think that through, and you've got to understand why Paul can be so happy even when he's in prison. And, and what does that mean for your life? Do you need to be dependent on, on the circumstances of your life at every moment to be happy? Could you ever be happy in prison? And so on. So you teach your children that way. And uh, get them other books to help them. We, we, of course, my dad was always big on getting 
building a library for, for each one of us kids, one way or another. And we did the same thing with our kids. Uh, when, they went, when they were old enough to work, 5%, 5% of their income they made, they built up to buy books. And I'll take them over to Reformation Heritage Books, sit on the floor with them, get all the kids' books around us. They get so excited, because I was excited. You're going to be reading. I remember my daughter coming to me when she was like 16 years, one of our daughters coming to me when I was 16, she was 16 years old. She goes, Dad, I got a question for you. You know, you know how Calvin and Lydia and I have these, have these bookcases full of books in our, in our, in our bedrooms, and well, when we go to, over to our friend's house, they don't, have a, they don't even have a bookcase in their bedroom. How come we got so many books? Well, because, my dear, reading will help you understand the Bible better. And the more you read, the more you'll be informed by the Bible. So you teach them. Study the book as a whole, then study one chapter at a time. What does this chapter reveal about God? What does it say about Jesus? What doctrines are taught in this chapter? Is there something for me to meditate on this chapter? What are the leading characters in this chapter? I wish we had done more of this, actually. And then study the words and the verses in the chapter that really stand out. Why why is that word repeated? And so on. Now, when you teach your children to read the Bible well, you also want to impact them with your own life with things that have happened in your life or maybe people in the church. For example, we have a woman in our church, she's now with the Lord, but she she was converted very suddenly through a sermon being read to her by her husband in their home by Octavius Winslow on Psalm 31, verse 15, my times are in thy hand. And she told me the moving story of how she was saved under that sermon. Every time we get to Psalm 31, which is about every three years, I would tell my children that same story over again. I'd talk to them about stories about the Reformers, about the Puritans, about my own life. Mary would chip in with things that happened in her life. So our kids would get to know certain texts in the Bible or certain promises especially that were very dear to us. Why am I doing that? Why are we doing that? Well, we want our children to understand that God speaks with power through his word to his people Uh, 400 years ago, yes, but today, today in the church, today in the souls of their mom and dad, and this Bible is a living, breathing book that will speak to them as well. So read it, read it, children, every day on your own, and we'll read it together in family worship as well. Now, when you teach your children from the Bible, Make sure when you ask specific questions that flow out of the Family Worship Bible Guide, you can then have spin-off questions that relate to the certain age of each child. When you do that, I advise you strongly to, to aim at the right age level. And don't let, if the 15-year-old can't answer it, don't let the 10-year-old answer it. 15-year-old will just be embarrassed and ashamed. No, you just look and say, Lydia, what do you think of this? And, and they've been trained. The others don't answer. And, and Esther, what do you think of that? And, and, and you have kind of like a, a dialogue, either with mom or, or, or dad, 
And it goes back and forth this way. And then sometimes it just goes off in a different direction, and you're all talking together. And that's wonderful, too. Wonderful. So the point is, by the time you make it through the whole Bible, and it usually took us three, three maybe even four years, what happens is your children end up talking with you and you with them about every subject under the sun from a biblical perspective because the Bible talks about every subject under the sun. So I was, uh, some of you know that, I was accosted in an in a Eastern European country after lecturing on systematic theology. I went back to my flat. Some guys came in and, and kind of hit me and tied me up and gagged me and, and they kept shouting they were the mafia and they had just told me the day before, if you're ever in the hands of the mafia, you are absolutely a dead man. Well, I never, I was laying there on the ground with my hands tied tightly behind my back and they were running a knife up and down my back and slapping my face with it and there was just no chance I would live. I did not pray for myself. I just thought, well, my work is done. But my kids were only about, I don't know, 10, 8, and 6 or something like that and maybe a tad older the thought came to me when I was laying there, what, what, if, what if I just had one more chance to talk to them? What would I talk about? Being a very busy guy, there would have been a thousand things I had never talked to them about, I promise you, if it hadn't been for family worship. Family worship is a godsend for a father because it gives you the right, it gives you the opening, it gives you the privilege, it gives you the responsibility to talk to your children about every subject under the sun. Now, be affectionate as you talk to your children. Don't make the family worship to be a burden. Make it to be something the kids desire. They desire, even if they're not saved yet. They can still enjoy family worship out of God's common grace. And take those little ones, as I said, on your lap, and look them eyeball to eyeball. Involve everyone. Now, finally, what about, what about the praying and the singing? Well, for praying, just be short. Maybe three to five minutes is, is, is certainly long enough. But don't be so short that you don't have any substance there. Ha- pray for, for, for Kelvin's test tomorrow. Pray for Esther. She's gotten a bad cold. But pray for the big thing for the salvation of their soul, for your church, for your pastor, for, for the coming of God's kingdom in their hearts. And, and we try to teach our children to pray by having them take turns. When they're three years old, I'd have them on my lap, and I'd start saying, you do the daddy's prayer now, as they, they called it the daddy's prayer. And I'd say, repeat after me. I'd whisper some words in their ears. They'd repeat them for maybe three minutes. And then... When they get to be four years old, they'd say, you start it, you start the prayer best you can. When you run stuck, just poke me with your elbow. And they did. And then I would help them, say some words. When you're seven years old, I'd say, now you just take the whole prayer. See, the Holy Spirit alone can teach them to truly pray. I know that. But we're responsible to teach them the rudiments of prayer. And the Spirit can bless it to their hearts. So we, we try to use the Acts formula. We think that's probably one of the best ways to teach your children. You, you begin by adoring God, telling him how wonderful he is. You then confess. You confess the sins, family sins, personal sins. 
then the T for thanksgiving, so much to thank the Lord for, and S, supplications. And then for singing, you sing doctrinally pure songs. It doesn't make sense to be reformed. I think the reformed way is the best way of handling the truth of the Bible. And then sing Arminian songs and undo what you're doing. You sing psalms first and foremost, I think, because this is God's canonical manual for singing. But yes, beef it up with wonderful, God-glorifying, Christ-centered hymns. That, that's wonderful. But remember, don't forget the psalms. At least don't forget the psalms. Calvin said, the psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul, and they center upon the triune God. They're the richest gold mine of deep, living, experiential, scriptural piety available to the church throughout the ages. Don't neglect them. And teach your children to sing heartily and with feeling. And don't allow excuses. Like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like singing. Well, you're under our roof, my son. And we give you physical food. We're going to give you spiritual food. And we don't ask you. We, we, we command you to involve yourself in the singing. You have every reason to thank the Lord for a thousand things and praise him in song as well. Now, when everyone cannot get together, this is something that I don't think we did too well at, but um, we would just say we'll try to get as many people together at a certain time every day, usually right after supper, and then, you know, kid would be off at college and wouldn't be able to make it. I wish, like anything now, when that child had come home at 10 o'clock that night, I wish I had just gone to the child and said, okay, let's just you and me do a little family worship for seven or eight minutes. Uh, I didn't do that, and I, re I regret it till today. Now, of course, we're empty nesters. My wife and I do family worship the same way. We use the family worship Bible guide just with each other, and uh, we, we, we love it. We enjoy it. So if all your children are out of the home, you still do family worship. My Bible says to me, we're two or three are gathered together. I will be in the midst of them. Oh, you and your wife are two. So, and if you're all alone, try to find a, a place or a time where you can join a family to, 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 to be involved in the family worship. And given the love of this congregation, I'm sure that many of the families would allow you to join them for family worship. Motivations. Let me close with four or five motivations. Number one, the eternal welfare of your loved ones. Oh, Spurgeon said that when his mother used to do family worship with him, she'd put him on her lap and she'd pray for him with the tears streaming from her face and they would go down the neck of his collar and she'd pray things like this, Lord, thou knowest if these prayers are not answered in Charles' conversion, these very prayers will witness against him on the judgment day. Wow. He said, the thought that my mother's prayers would serve as witness against me in the day of judgment sent terror into my heart. <laughs> but they also moved him to love that holy, holy God. So we've got to use every means. There's so much against our children in the world today. To snatch them as brands from the burning, we've got to pray with them, teach them, sing with them, weep over them, admonish them, plead with them. And remember, at every family worship, what you're doing is you're ushering your children into the presence of the Most High God, and you're seeking to pull down the benedictions of heaven upon them. 
by the grace of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And if millions of children, as church history will tell you, if you pick up old books of the Reformers and Scottish Covenanters and English Puritans, are converted through their parents and ministry and family worship, why in the world would you not do it? Number two, satisfaction of a good conscience. I love what Matthew Henry did when he came to die. Got all his kids around him, his family around him. He looked at his children, spoke to them one by one, and then he spoke to them as a group. And this is what he said, basically, my own words. He said, children, you know I haven't been a perfect father. You know my faults. You know my folly. You know my, my weaknesses. I want to ask you, would you forgive me for all my imperfections? And they all did. And then he said, but children, don't you dare meet me on the wrong side of Jesus on the judgment day. You go, wow, where did you get to be so bold, Matthew Henry? How, how do you dare to say that? You believe God is sovereign. But you see, he went on to say this to them. I can say this to you because in family worship, I brought you Jesus Christ and the free offer to come to him every day just as you were. Don't you ever, ever, ever turn away from all those family worships that come to Christ now and rest in him now and serve him all your life. See, it was that free conscience that enabled him to speak so boldly to his children. Don't you meet me on the wrong side of Jesus. Thirdly, assistance in child rearing. You know, sometimes when kids get in their teen years, especially if they're in um, different schools and they can get friends, sometimes not the best friends, and, and sometimes what the friends say start to become more important than what mom and dad say. And you, you feel like they're slipping out of your hand. The best counteraction to that is family worship. Because in family worship, you're opening your own soul, you're opening the Bible, you're talking about every subject under the sun, you're talking about the facts of life. You, you've got open communication with your children. One will participate more than another. One is a different character than another. But all of them are used to you being open with them. And they will be, to various degrees, open with you. So when they get into these friendships... They don't just turn that all off like a faucet. No, the family worships in the young days, it's like putting money in the bank and you can withdraw it in the teen years and use it because they're going to keep speaking to you. You're going to keep being open with you, with one another. Five or four, the shortness of time. 20 years, average child's in the home. 365 per year. That's 7,300 times you have opportunities to tell them everything they need to know about this life and the eternal life to come. Those 7,300 times are precious and they're gone like that. I don't know of any parent who's an empty nester that doesn't say, wow, it's like I blinked a couple times and my kids were teenagers. I blinked a couple more times and they were off to school and married. You've got to use these times while they're there. Now, what happens? What happens if you're older now and you haven't done any of these things and you're feeling really guilty right now? Well, begin with your grandchildren. Ask your kids if you can take them on your lap and 
talk to them about the Lord. Read the Bible with them. And go to your children. Maybe, maybe give them this, this talk in whatever recorded form it is and say, I have failed. I don't want you to fail. Please implement family worship. And give them the family worship Bible guide. Show them how to do it. And ask for their forgiveness. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Begin now. Begin just with your wife. All right, I'm going to close now with, with one story. And this story is a summary of everything I'm trying to say. If you forget everything I said and you remember this story, I'll be happy. Okay? It's about John Patton. And uh, when he was leaving home, he was uh, 18 years old, going off to university. And his dad walked with him the first six miles of the way. This is going to take me two or three minutes to read, and then we'll be done. But I want you to listen to this. This is, this is the essence of what a good family worship does for a family. Tears are on my cheeks now as freely as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene where my father walked with me for the first six miles on the way to the university. For the last half mile, we walked almost in silence. My father, as was his custom, carrying his hat in his hand, his lips moving, I knew he was praying for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other at the appointed parting place with looks for which all speech is in vain. He grasped my hand firmly and then shook it for a minute in silence. And then with tears in his eyes, solemnly and affectionately, he said, God bless you, my son. Your fathers, God bless you and keep you from evil. And unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran as fast as I could, and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back, I saw him still standing with head uncovered, praying for me, where I left him gazing after me. Waving my hat, my hat goodbye, I was around the corner in an instant, but my heart was too full, too sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a while. And then rising cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if my father yet stood there. And at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike, looking after me. But he did not see me. And after he gazed in my direction for a while, he got down and set his face towards home, began to return. But I noticed his head still uncovered, his heart still rising in prayer for me, I'm sure. I watched through my blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve and dishonor such a father and such a mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, his tears, the prayers, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, the walking away head uncovered, have often all throughout my life risen vividly before my mind. Even now, as I am writing, 60 years later, 
as if it all happened an hour ago. In my earliest years, particularly in university, when exposed to many temptations, my father's parting form would rise before me in my mind like that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped me by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties might faithfully follow his shining example. And then here it comes. How much my father's prayers at this time impress me I can never explain to anyone, nor can any stranger ever understand. But when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul in tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for our every personal need. And we would all feel as children as if we were in the very presence of the living Savior And we learn to love and to know that Savior as our divine Savior, Lord, and friend. And as we would rise from our knees, I used to steal a look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged to carry the gospel to the heathen world in some way. No coincidence that John Penn went to the cannibals. No coincidence that he persevered when his home, his little home was burned down there and his wife died and his child died and he was left all alone and he thought the cannibals were gonna come and kill him and eat him. No coincidence that even then he didn't leave, but he climbed up into a tree that night and went to sleep in the tree where they couldn't get him. And there, as he was trying to fall asleep, he said it was as if God threw into the sky in golden capital letters, I will be with thee always, even until the end of the world. No coincidence. That Peyton stayed the course. Thousands of those cannibals were converted under his ministry over decades. God used the family worships of his father. Begin today. God bless you. Let's pray. Gracious God, please, please help us to do daily family worship, that we would be bonded to thee in it and bonded to one another as husband and wife, but also as parents and children, that the spirit of love would permeate those family worships and that together as families we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use them to our children's eternal salvation, to their maturation, to their increasing conformity to the image of thy dear Son. So go with us, Lord, and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. 
That's gracenevada.com.